Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. We literally cannot survive without food. And yet, until 1996, food studies as an academic discipline was not even a thing until my guest, Dr. Marian Nessel, founded the department and program at New York University, where she remains Professor Emerita. Dr. Nessel has been a pioneer in studying nutrition, public health, and she has been a courageous advocate for human rights as they relate to food. In fact, she is widely considered one of the nation's most important authorities when it comes to food and food politics. She has published dozens of important articles relating to food and health research and 12 books, including her latest, a memoir called Slow Cooked. I loved the book, as did legendary food expert Alice Waters, who describes Marion, whose PhD is in molecular biology, as one of the nation's shrewdest thinkers. In addition to her world-class science acumen, you will hear that she is also a pure delight as a person. So listen in as Dr. Nessel, yes, her name is pronounced Nessel like the verb and not like the food company, and I talk about a life in food studies and food politics. Dr. Marian Nessel, who has asked me to call her Marian, welcome to Super Psyched. Oh, really happy to be here. Oh, such a thrill for me. My first question is the obvious one. After having written so many important academic studies and books on food and health, you've decided to go personal and you've written a memoir, which I happen to have loved. No pun intended. I devoured it in a very short time. And I was telling you offline how much I have been enjoying geeking out to you, but I've got to know what compelled you to write a memoir. When the pandemic started, I have a very complicated commuting relationship with a partner who lives in Ithaca, New York, which is four and a half hours away from New York. So there I was in Ithaca without my usual office and library and resources and everything else. And I thought I needed a project pretty badly. And the other things that I was doing wouldn't work because I couldn't get into libraries. A lot of my work deals with pre-internet things. So everything I need is not, in fact, on the internet. And I couldn't get into my office. I couldn't get into records. And I thought, well, maybe this is the time to take on the questions that I get asked all the time about how did you become you? And how did you get the courage to take on the food industry? How did you first get interested in food? How did you get interested in nutrition? These kinds of sort of personal questions that usually I avoid. And I thought maybe this is a time to sort of sit down and take those questions seriously rather than just kind of brushing them off and really deal with them. And if people are interested in asking that question, maybe there's a small group of people who might be willing to look at a book about that. And 
the book is published by University of California Press, which I feel like is my personal publisher because it's my sixth book with them. Wonderful. And I'm wondering what have been some of the benefits of living the examined life in this way, writing such a personal memoir? Well, I think it was a one of my psychiatrist friends put it, was it cathartic for you? Yes, it, <laughs> it certainly was. There were a lot of loose ends that I had never really thought about and reflecting back on them, kind of elderly. And it's, this is a really good time to be reflecting back. And I had the opportunity to not think about it. I couldn't do anything else during the pandemic except avoid people. And suddenly I had lots and lots of time and it really afforded the opportunity to think back on it and try to make sense of what, in my particular case, a lot of my background doesn't make sense at all. Why did my family make the choices that they made and the decisions that they made and trying to make sense of that in a situation in which I really don't have anybody I can check it with. Writing a memoir of this nature and examining your life as we're describing it and trying to fill in loose ends to the best of your ability, I find myself thinking about surprises that show up as you reconsider phenomena during the course of your life. One of which, a detail that really stood out for me, was the premature death of your father. At 47 years old, he was obese. And you just kind of briefly mentioned, yeah, and this may have played a part in what became my career. Were there other surprises as you were examining your life? Like, oh my gosh, suddenly something makes sense that didn't make sense before. Or there were things that I hadn't really even remembered or considered the importance of. Did any of those things happen along the way? Yeah, there were several of them. That was certainly one of them. I mean, here my father was an obese, a small gray weight, 350 pounds, 5'10". He had lost 100 pounds at one point. I don't know how or what diet he was on. He gained it all back. I mean, this is right smack in the middle of the kind of work that I do. I'm looking at food industry influences on that kind of behavior. And he was a three-pack-a-day smoker. He had what we would now call multiple risk factors for coronary artery disease. And it was right after the second, he died in 1950. So it was right after the Second World War when heart disease rates were skyrocketing. And doctors didn't know how to deal with it. They'd never seen it before. They were unfamiliar with it. And there must have been a genetic component involved in it too, because his younger brother, who was 20 years younger, also had a heart attack at age 47, but he lived until his 90s because by that time, the technology had caught up with it and they knew how to deal with coronary heart attacks. But it never really occurred to me when the, my interest in food or my interest in nutrition or my falling in love with it when I started teaching it had anything to do with my father because my father was boxed off in a way that I really have never been able to do anything about. I just don't remember very much about him. I had a very, very difficult time with my boss in Washington, D.C. Much, much later, I had a really hard time with him. And when I was writing the chapter in which I was discussing our relationship, I thought, oh, my God, he's my mother. Mm. He treats me exactly the way my mother No wonder I'm reacting so strongly. Yeah. And so there were those kinds of things. 
that we're interested. And part of the meaning, I believe, in slow cooked is kind of a nod to the fact that you are a late bloomer. And that's a moniker to which with which I really identify. I am a late bloomer as well. And there seems to be some burgeoning research to show that we late bloomers tend to actually bloom a little bit larger. If you were to just guess, how has being a late bloomer served you perhaps surprisingly? Well, I appreciate it so much. I'm so excited and so happy and so appreciative of the kinds of opportunities that I had starting at age 66. Mm -hmm. These were things that I had never had before. And all of a sudden, they were falling in my lap. I think if they had come in my 30s, I wouldn't have been nearly as grateful or appreciative or enjoyed them nearly as much. I would have thought that was normal. Sure. And yet you found a way to lean into the pandemic and make it work for you through this. It wasn't exactly what you wanted to do, I'm guessing, but you found something that was of great meaning, if I'm understanding correctly. Oh, I think so. I mean, it got me up every day. Let's go into some... I mean, you have not for a second backed away from conflict, controversy, or really big challenges. You've taken on the soda industry. What has provided you with the stamina, the gas, the will to stand up so boldly? I have tenure. <laughs> what else? I think there's something I mean, beyond that. I'm serious about that. Yeah. I'm serious about that. I came to NYU in 1988 so as, a, as a tenured full professor. Right. It was life-changing. You know, there are people for whom tenure gives them permission to do nothing for the rest of their lives. It had the opposite effect on me. For me, it was a door opener. It was a solid, secure platform. I could not be fired unless I did something really egregious and broke the law, you know, or corrupted students or did something really terrible. I had a platform. And NYU is an amazing institution. I got the best of NYU, the absolute best, where you could do anything you want to as long as you can figure out how to pay for it. And I could do anything I wanted. Never, not once, did a university administrator ever call me in and say, could you be a little bit nicer to food companies you want to ask them for money? That never happened. Never, no. not once. I love your answer. And again, tribute at least in part to your being a late bloomer and not taking your tenure for granted. But the other thing is we humans don't like in general conflict or feeling rejected or some of the things that you had to go through in order to stand up for what you knew was right. You were not just going to fall into the background. You stood in the face of people, including Julia Child, who did not really understand you at the very beginning, who came around to love you or at least like you and endorse a book who you adored and whose book that you owned was so worn out that it had to get rebound. <laughs> but you've faced a lot of adversity and somehow I think there's something beyond the tenure. And I think that's why I responded as I did. What is it about you that allowed you to stay so firm in your convictions? I mean, I grew up in a political family and I bought values from that family. I really bought those values of that They were important values. I still hold those values. I think everybody should eat healthfully and everybody should have access to healthy diets and that good diets for everybody is a really important value. It will be good for society. So I'm for all that. 
The other thing is I wrote a book called Food Politics. And if you're going to be engaged in politics, you cannot take the reactions personally or you can't function. And so I thought a lot of the reactions to food politics were hilariously funny. You know, I mean, the idea that people would accuse me of not liking food was so completely ludicrous that all I could do was laugh. Or the idea that I didn't think that personal responsibility mattered. Of course, personal responsibility matters. But the kinds of things that I was being accused of were political things. And they weren't really personal. When it got personal and ugly, which it did, I write a blog. I've been doing a blog for about 15 years now. And there was a period of very intense trolling on the blog when the comments were all personal. They were about how I looked, how old I was, what my religion was, what I mean, all of those kinds of things. They were so awful that I finally had to stop comments on the blog. So that wasn't much fun. But even then, I knew that somebody was paying for it. Knew somebody had to be paying for it because the comments were all of a like tone. They all came from the same place. I had a cybersecurity colleague sort of tracked down where they came from. They came from a very well-known spam site. Somebody had to have paid for it. And so knowing that, that just weren't millions of people out there who were suddenly coming to the same conclusion about my work, but in fact, this was a paid operation, made it a little easier to handle, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And I'm wondering if you could actually, as difficult as this may be to do, Because I think that so many people end up in more of a bystander than an upstander role like you've chosen. We know that we humans are actually designed to conform. And it's the rare exception who is willing to stand up in a kind of a Rosa Parks fashion. And I'm wondering if you could describe the thought process. You basically said that you didn't take it personally. Sounds like you've realized it was theater in some ways and it wasn't real. Yeah, you're nodding. And I'm wondering if you could just even describe like, how you would receive a stimulus of an ugly assault and how in your brain you would break it down and then suddenly feel okay. Because what the listener cannot see is what I can see. And that is you may be 86 years old chronologically, but you look spectacularly younger. I know it's attributable to a host of factors, but if the deleterious aspects of these toxic messages were to get to you, I imagine you'd look a lot older and (laughs) like to hear in your mind, like, how do you translate an assault? How do you break it down so it doesn't become part of you or that you don't take it in? Well, I'll give you an example. So people who were trolling, the person who was trolling, who I'm absolutely convinced was paid to do it, tried to organize a campaign at NYU to get me fired. (laughs) I thought it was funny. I remember I have tenure. I have tenure. I can't be fired (laughs) very easily. I can be fired, but it's really difficult. And NYU doesn't have a history of firing tenured professors. It has a recent history of firing untenured Mm -hmm. professors. So I dealt with it rather than fret about it. I went to the dean of my school and went on and said, look, this campaign is being organized. Is this something I should be worried about? They thought it was funny, too. They laughed. So, I mean, in some sense, it was so obviously theater 
that it was very hard to take personally. Mm, brilliant. Uh, I mean, I could easily talk myself out of it. I'm trying to think of something that was personally wounding that happened. But I mean, even when I was threatened with a lawsuit from the Sugar Association, I thought it was funny because the threat was so ridiculous. Mm. It just it didn't make any biochemical sense. They were accusing me of saying that soft drinks contained sugar. And I was defaming sugar because soft drinks don't contain sugar. They contain high fructose corn syrup. I can't tell you how funny that is. That is funny. I was laughing during that part. Because corn syrup is sugar. (laughs) It's just represented by a different trade association. A lot of it was so obvious. I don't mind being criticized for my age. It is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it. It's not fixable. If you get criticized for things, you can do something about. And the other thing is I get criticized for my opinions, but not for the factual basis of those opinions. Mm. And so there again, I don't expect people to agree with me. I don't expect everybody to agree with me. I mean, I'm happy to debate anybody who wants to debate and provide the evidence for why I think the way I do, but I don't like being found to be making mistakes. I try not to make mistakes. People who find mistakes get to me. Oh, really? So you don't take delight in, in learning something new in the event of a mistake? Actually, kind of Oh, I fix it as soon as I can. I've already found the first, I've already been told about the first mistake in this book. Yeah. It's not a very bad one, but still. I'd heard a story about Danny Kahneman out of Princeton and maybe apocryphal, maybe true that he actually takes delight when he is corrected because of the dopaminergic rush of learning something new. It's like, oh, now I know. But I'm guessing this is kind of a different phenomenon for you. This was a stupid mistake. <laughs> this was, I, know, I see <laughs> an oversight. Okay. If the book ever gets reprinted, it'll get fixed. Well, I expect so. it will. It's such a great book. And listener, I cannot emphasize enough. This is a must read or listen on Audible as I did. Let's just talk about some of the misconceptions that people have about you and your work. And just really quickly, Julia Child, as I mentioned earlier, actually kind of accused you of not loving food and somehow trying to find, and you love, I mean, you love food. That's one of the things that comes so through. And by the way, you've got a brother right here. I absolutely adore food. And I can just hope to share a meal with you someday, just so we can geek out to what we're eating. But what are some of the misconceptions that people may have about you and your work? I don't have a very good sense of how my work is perceived. I'm a quantitative scientist, and there's no way to quantitate that. So I don't have a very good sense of what people think about it. Or people think, because my last name is Nestle, that I'm related to the Nestle Corporation. (laughs) That gets corrected pretty quickly. Right. Although I was once at a meeting in which somebody said, well, you really ought to just describe yourself as the black sheep of the family. <laughs> kind of um, like Robbins did from, was it John Robbins from Baskin Robbins? Yes, right. Yes. Yeah, I uh, met John Robbins. Right? He's a great guy, isn't he? Yeah. One of the things that you had to review was your contributions, including the research you've conducted, the books you've written, the relationships you've had. What have been some of the accomplishments that have meant the most as you look back? Well, I think there are three. One is my book, Food Politics, which was considered groundbreaking when it came out. And it's so interesting because I thought I was just describing the obvious, which was that food companies put a lot of time, effort and money 
into trying to convince people to buy their products, no matter mm-hmm. what the products are. They're not social service agencies. They've got stockholders. They behave like any other corporation in a capitalist economy. And it surprised me that everybody didn't know that. I think more people know it now than did 20 years ago when that yeah. But at the time, it came as a big surprise to people that food companies were businesses. Yeah. I, I mean, it sounds so crazy, but that was it. So that was one. And I tried to explain in the book how I came to write it and the long lead up to writing that book. So that was one. The second one was, again, a serendipitous occurrence where we at NYU were able to develop programs. We started a new academic field. That's pretty unusual at universities. That doesn't happen very often. And it happened because something was taken away from my department, which at the time was, I think, nutrition, food, and hotel management, I think it was called. The hotel management was taken away. That was a million dollars in tuition a year. Everybody was feeling really sorry for us. And the dean said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, how about food studies? And because I think, even though nobody knew what food studies was, I was a little hard pressed to explain, but I came up with something. And because everybody was feeling sorry for us because of this big financial hit we were taking, they went through and we went from concept to state approval in under a year, which was pretty quick. And then the New York Times wrote about it the week that it was approved. And we had people in our office that afternoon holding up the clipping and saying, I've waited all my life for this program. (laughs) And that was 1996 (laughs) when we were the only food studies program in the country. There was a program in gastronomy that Julia Childs had been involved with at Boston University that still exists. But now there are 65 or 70 food studies programs in listed on the website of the Association for the Study of Food and Society, which collects this information. And I was at the White House conference on hunger, food, and and health. And I talked to two people who were starting programs at their schools. So we started a movement. Who knew? The food studies movement. So these are programs that study the role of food and culture and or the role of food in food systems, which includes agriculture. And everybody is doing that. People love studying about food. They just love it. And which Absolutely. Was, and I knew that, which is why I thought this program would work. So that would be the second thing. And then the third thing is the astonishing collection of books about food in NYU's library, which is named after me, which oh. I'm very touched by, I have to say. I'm really, really touched by it. And it has about 70,000 books about food, a lot of them cookbooks, but other things as well. And that was also the result of a lucky break and a terrific curator at the library who worked for us on it. First of all, I loved hearing about those three accomplishments. They're absolutely mind-blowing and very heartwarming. I am the son of a curly-haired woman who (laughs) also was a pioneer in food. She was teaching vegetarian cooking and alternative, healthful styles of cooking in the late 70s, much to the bemusement of my friends because they'd come over to me and say, you know, I used to get Twinkies in my lunch and now I don't. And Adam, you suck. 
And I'm so grateful to my mom actually for instilling at such a young age ideas surrounding nutrition, things that we now take for granted, but in my childhood that were as far out as alien life. I mean, just really, yeah, and you're nodding. And I'm guessing there was no idea called food studies when you had proposed it. And now we just take it for granted. This is, of course, like sequence of all science. It initially sounds it's rejected and almost fought against. And now it's just considered obvious. I'm wondering about the friends, however, and it's a funny segue to get into it, but you have made so many incredible friends along the way who you've helped and who have helped you. And I was wondering if you could describe some of the friendships and how those have played a part in your career and in your life. Well, everybody needs friends Mm. and we're social animals. We need friends. And mine have been particularly useful in the sense that they give me very good advice. Or maybe I've chosen my friends because they give me good advice. But when I wrote the original manuscript for this book, I gave it to four friends to read. One of them, a psychiatrist in San Francisco, who's been my friend for 40 years now and who worries that I don't express emotions as well as she would like me. So I particularly wanted her to read it to make sure that when feelings needed to be mentioned, feelings were mentioned. And so she was very helpful in that. I gave it to a friend in New Zealand who was an English professor. I wanted to make sure it was written well. And then a friend who's a food writer who could make comments about the food world as that went through. And then one who I, someone I actually don't know very well, was a new friend, just to see what kind of a reaction I would get, because I couldn't imagine how people would react to this. I also gave it to my children to read. And was interesting, in the first public talk that I gave about the book, somebody asked the question, what does your children think of this? (laughs) And what did you say? Well, they hadn't said much. So I wrote my kids and said, this question came up, how shall I answer it? And my son said, tell them we liked it fine. And my daughter said, we're very proud. There we go. I was judged. I was very, very judged. And yet it seems that your friendship, while they have a utilitarian value, there's a real emotional connection and, and a maintenance that you engage in. There's a friend with whom you walk around Stowe Lake every time you're in San Francisco. That's the psychiatrist. That's the psychiatrist. (laughs) Got it. And and you're very tight with various people like Michael Jacobson, who is a hero in my house. We've been subscribing to his newsletter for decades. I mean, he's awesome. I call his publication the This Claim is False magazine. (laughs) He seems to be popping a lot of balloons that people want to believe about myths that this wonder silver bullet will change everything. And he basically says, yeah, here's a peer review <laughs> article suggesting the, the opposite. But you've written in Alice Waters, Shape Honey's Restaurant, so many people that you've really maintained. And I can tell that in spite of the fact that you may not express emotions, that there's a real love and warmth with these people in, who surround you. And, and I can't help but imagine that they also help you foster your conviction and that you carry them with you as you go through life. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not as if I didn't have support for a lot of what I write. And I should say, I've been writing this daily blog for 15 years. I get a lot of support for it. It has a niche audience. It's not huge, but people say nice things and they say they learn things from it. And I think of myself as an educator. So 
It's nice that I'm still doing that in my retirement. This is what retirement looks like. Wonderful and meaningful. I used to live in Japan where the size large of a soft drink was very small relative to the American size. And one of the things that seems to be an erroneous conclusion that people may draw about you is that you don't believe in self-determination. And yet you do. You just also want other structures, it seems, to support making easier choices. And I find myself thinking about the behavioral economists out of University of Chicago who wrote a great book called Nudge, not pronounced Nudge, but Nudge by Thaler and Sunstein. <laughs> a wonderful piece where they describe certain behaviors that governments can take without being draconian, but to make it easier to make the right choice. And I'm wondering if you were to have a hand in that, what might be some of your advice that you would give to make it easier for people to make more healthful choices? Well, I would certainly portion size. (laughs) Number one. I mean, one of the things that happened during the time when the prevalence of obesity started increasing so rapidly was that portion size got bigger. I mean, I can still remember when bagels were the size of what are now mini bagels and muffins were the size of what are now mini muffins. And I'm always joking that if I had one nutritional concept that I could get across to absolutely everybody, it would be that larger portions have more calories. It's not intuitively obvious. It's really not. There's something human where we must be hardwired to think that every portion, no matter how big it is, has 100 calories in it. And we know this, we've tested it, that people just don't have any idea that the number of calories that are in larger portions. I think larger portions are a sufficient explanation for people gaining weight. You don't need another one. So I would do something to restrict portion sizes and also to restrict marketing to children. I think, okay, adults, it's too late to do anything. Everybody's fixed in their ways. But the idea that obesity is increasing among children is really disheartening. It's going to be very, very difficult to deal with when they become adults. It's better to prevent it from happening in the first place. And a lot of the reason that kids are gaining weight is because they're eating a lot of junk food and it's heavily, heavily marketed to them. I was once at one of Michelle Obama's meetings at the White House on marketing to children where she was trying to talk to food manufacturers to tell them that they just couldn't. They just shouldn't, was morally wrong of them to continue to market their products to children. And the girl broke into smaller groups afterwards. And there were food industry executives at my session who said, we would love to stop marketing to children, but our stockholders won't let us. And I thought, I'd never heard it stated quite so boldly. But what they were saying was that the products that we're marketing to children make so much money for us that we can't stop doing this. So that's what it's about. And that's what we're up against. And the allegiance. And that seems to me to be, that seems to me to be worth fighting. Sure. It's well put. And I'm thinking about that conflict of interest. The allegiance of a board, of course, is to its stockholders, not to the end user. They could be selling widgets. Exactly. That's exactly what I was about to say. It wouldn't matter what the product is. And in this case, something so necessary, like we can live without an iPhone, although it's hard to, but we cannot live without food. And when it comes down to food, oh boy, this is a tough one. And it's a very emotional 
topic. I mean, oh. unlike other addictions, and I would definitely consider myself something of a food addict. It's, oh, we, uh, have it, we have to eat. We have, we have to eat. <laughs> so I ask you this question. Have there been any studies, and you'd be the one who would know this. I'm going to give a little preamble here. Okinawa, where we know it's a blue zone where people tend to live longer and more centenarians per capita than most places like other blue zones. And one of the practices, is something called harahachibu, which literally means a belly 80% full. And you're familiar with this concept, I'm sure. And what I would love to know is if we were to give two groups, two different experiences at the same restaurant, one in which they ate large portion sizes, typical, and the other, because I know for sure, if I get a large portion size, I'm going to eat the whole thing. But in the other group, they get a smaller portion size. What I would love to know is, have there ever been exit polls to see how much satisfaction was derived from each experience? Was there a measurable difference between the two groups? And those experiments have been done. And the uh, people eat more from larger portions. There's no question about that. They eat a lot more. Uh-huh. And they also eat a lot more if the foods that they're given are what are now called the ultra processed, meaning that they're industrially produced, don't really look like foods, can't be made in old kitchens, but Dorito have- chips as opposed to corn. <laughs> sure. yeah. And people eat more from those. But they can't drive more pleasure, I'm wondering, does it increase the value of the brand? For example, let's say it's at, at Chili's and these two groups depart. Does the larger portion yield a greater likelihood of returning to that restaurant and more pleasure or is the opposite? Yes, true? but not for reasons of pleasure. For oh, attributable not, to what? Not for reasons of pleasure. The, you know, people get derived, you get the most pleasure from the first bite. And diminishing uh, afterwards, right? Diminishing afterwards. And so it's not for reasons of pleasure. It's for reasons of quantity. Then they think, wow, I'm getting a great value here. I'm getting a ton of food. Exactly. Exactly. And also it's not relatively expensive compared to lots of other things. Yeah. I mean, people really like having a lot of food. It's funny. I don't. And yet it seems that if people, and it sounds like you are an exception to this, and you describe, by the way, in hilarious versions, like being served a gigantic piece of meat from children. Um, which you consume, but most people seem to be more likely to return to Chili's, for example. And I, I have always loved Chili's. I have very positive associations with that restaurant ever since childhood. But are they more likely to return? So it's sadly, it's good business. It's really good business. Yeah, because you know that you're going to get a big, satisfying portion of something that you like eating. So what do we do? I mean, how do we face this impasse? Well, you could exercise personal responsibility. <laughs> We have lots of evidence that that doesn't work very well. That's why, I mean, where was I? I was at, a, was at an Italian restaurant in New York where I couldn't finish the portion that I was given. And I've had two subsequent meals from it. Wow. I brought it home. It was very good. And I've had two subsequent meals from it. Then you have to learn how to manage it. And not everybody can do that. It's very, very difficult for people to control the current food environment to stop eating when large amounts of food that they like is put in front of them. Very, very difficult to do. So there are lots of things you can do if you're able to do them. You can cook at home. That's always a good thing to do. The portion sizes are more reasonable and the food is usually healthier. 
Or you can, if you have that kind of personality, I suppose you could control it. I have a little trouble with that. Well, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about the few times that I've been willing to delay my gratification and not finish the large size. And it's almost like a love letter to my future self. It's almost like saying, hey, tomorrow version of me, guess what you get to eat? You get to eat this again and you get to have the first bite again. And you will have the gustatory pleasure that you had just last night relative to when you tried it. So I think that might be a hack is just considering it a gift to your future self. But I'm a uh, in, believer in policy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's have policies that make healthy food more available and affordable. Let's go there for a second. Yeah. How do we do that? What's your dream and how might we accomplish it? Lots and lots and lots of people who go through our food studies program running for office. Great idea. So what changes do you think might occur if that were to happen? Well, we have an agricultural system in the United States that set up to support big agriculture, it's not set up to, we grow 80% of our food is grown as food for animals and fuel for cars. We need a food system that promotes healthy food for people. How would we get that? How would we transform it? We have to have elected officials who are interested in public health more than corporate health. So what Uh, I'm inferring from that is if we allocated a portion of the budget towards rewarding farms and companies who were able to produce large quantities of really good stuff and subsidize perhaps even just because it might initially there may be a ramp up period that this this would be good and the department of agriculture is doing that to some extent but it's a tiny extent it's an absolutely tiny extent and i was once explained to me because i couldn't understand why are these industries so powerful that cattle are grown in every state and every state has two senators. So the meat industry is extremely powerful in the United States, politically powerful. And so the real question that you're asking in trying to change a system is how do you get political power? It's been a long time since we've had any functioning social movements in the United States. When I was in college and in graduate school in the 1960s, There was the women's movement. There was the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement. There were all these social movements going on and they were very exciting to be part of. And we all thought we were changing the world for the better. We were a little naive in retrospect, but it was fun at the time. So I think we need some of that. We need people who want to see a food system that's healthier for people on the planet to become active politically which a lot of people don't want to do because politics is ugly in this country. I have a question for you, a final miraculous question. And that is, if somehow you had the magical powers to confer upon all people one behavior or insight as it relates to food, what would that behavior or insight be? And how do you imagine it would impact people individually as well as collectively? Eat your vegetables. (laughs) And how would that impact people if they did? And And don't eat too much. I'm a great subscriber to Michael Pollan's description of how to eat food, not too much, mostly plants. That doesn't mean exclusively plants, but it does mean not eating too much and making sure you have plants in your diet and making sure always that food is delicious. It's Uh, such a pleasure. So great. So just really quickly, how do you imagine it would impact people if they did just that? I think everybody would be healthier and happier and the planet would be healthier and happier. Mm. 
because the diet that's best for health is also best at sequestering carbon and not producing greenhouse gases. Turns out there's one thing that really works. A virtuous cycle. Marianne, (laughs) it has been such a pleasure to meet you. And you lived up all the hype in my brain, how great it was going to be. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with my listeners. Well, thanks so much for having me here and eat well. I shall. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. 